Good day, everyone. Thursday, March 30. Special day. Not just because Tom Thornton's in the house, but it also is uh, opening day for baseball. I don't know how many of you are baseball fans. Um, I grew up on a baseball field. I'm heartened to see that they've uh, implemented some new rules this year to try to speed up the game. Living in Boston for many years, though, I was reminded uh, baseball is not meant to be played at night in April. <laughs> the start of the season earlier and earlier. Today's March 30th. Uh, I don't know if the Red Sox are at home today or not, but at any rate. Um, so base, opening day for baseball. It's been a couple of weeks since uh, we did a space. Uh, as is our uh, custom, uh, I'd like to highlight uh, this date in history. Get through this quickly, but I always learn something. Hopefully, uh, you do as well. Just reminds me how little I have read, how much I need to read. So, not in any particular order, um, but just at random. In 1853, the famous post-impressionist painter, Dutch, uh, Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh was born. 1853. An extraordinary man, extraordinary artist. Here's one for you. 1867. Secretary of State William Seward, under President Andrew Johnson, signed the Alaska Purchase, the treaty ceding Russian North America to the United States for a price. $7.2 million. $7.2 million. That amounted to two cents per acre. <laughs> Sounds like even a better deal than, uh, than the island of Manhattan. And then finally, uh, more recently, in 1981, hard to believe this, this was just 42 years ago, uh, there was an attempted assassination uh, of Ronald Reagan in Washington, D.C., outside the uh, Washington Hilton. Reagan uh, and three others were seriously uh, wounded. Um, and you know, he happily recovered. I remember it was Press Secretary Brady. Uh, he was really badly injured by this whole thing. We had the Brady Bill passed as a result of this whole thing. But at any rate, those are our, our three dates in history. So now to the markets, and it's been quite a start to the year. I certainly didn't get this market right, uh, but we have someone who uh, has a good nose for these things in the house, uh, Mr. Thornton, good friend. Been quite a quite a start. If I look at my Bloomberg, it says Nasdaq's at fifteen percent uh, so far, one of the best quarters in quite a while. Um, it's markets taken a lot of folks by surprise. There are a lot of stresses and strains. The uh, divergence and volatility between what's going on in the bond market and the equity market. Um, a lot of concerns now about the economy, intensified concerns because of the banking problems that we've had and the tightening of lending standards, which was already in evidence before this occurred. And it looks like, you know, many think it's all but assured that we're going to have a recession. No bank is above suspicion. 
You know, I think it was extraordinary how quickly Silicon Valley Bank uh, went under. Uh, no bank is above suspicion. And as uh, uh, John Roke, who's a good mutual friend of both uh, Tommy and myself and is no stranger to these rooms, he he wrote very in a very timely way reminding everyone, uh, uh, it was that three weeks ago, that it's hard for the market to do well if the financials are doing poorly. Um, well, that was the case initially, but I don't know. The market seemingly is rejecting that memo. Anyway, so the question is, how long can this divergence go on between, you know, you've seen extraordinary leadership out of uh, large cap tech. I think, um, you know, the fact that they're long duration assets and you've seen rates plummet combined with the idea that they have strong balance sheets um, has been a, a, a point of attraction for many. But let's not forget who their own customers are. Uh, and so, you know, the question is how, how far and for how long can this continue? Um, I read somewhere today that I think since the start of the year, earnings estimates, uh, I think it's for the first quarter, have been revised down by 5.9%. Um, so you've got increasing clouds, storm clouds of the economy, falling estimates. The market's not cheap by any measure. Uh, some parts of the market are doing very poorly. Uh, there's been very, you know, strong, narrow leadership out of the, uh, the large cap tech. So there's a lot to talk about. Uh, Tommy, really good to see you. Thank you. Thank you for being generous with your time as always. How have you been? Hey, George, I've been good. Uh, can you hear me okay? You're, you're, you're great. You're great. You always uh, okay. got a good nose for things and have a great way of uh, uh, putting the pieces together. So um why don't you just have at it? And we'll get into questions, and I'm sure we'll have some folks come up on stage. And we're starting at uh, 4.15. People uh, have lives, their families, so I don't know how long we'll go. Hour, hour. I have a I have a, a 6 o'clock uh, dinner, so I've okay. got to head out at 6. So Okay, so why, yeah, why don't we call us at 5.45? That'll, that'll give you ample time. Okay. So why don't we get into it? And, Tommy, the floor is yours. Talk about whatever... You know, wherever you want to go with this, uh, you know, I, I think you and I were talking the other day and you were mentioning how it's hard to have traction on a lot of things. There's no so many things are trendless. They're up, they're down. Um, and, you know, the market's been frustrating, and confusing for a lot of folks. So uh, have at it. The floor is yours. OK, well, I think that, um, you know, one thing that I've talked about uh, is that this Q1 um was really the first quarter I can recall that we didn't have some sort of outside catalyst. Um, we didn't have tra uh, the China trade war. We didn't have COVID lockdowns, supply chain problems, uh, other stuff that uh, that sort of came into the narrative that uh, really, you know, hurt the the markets. Obviously, uh, and and it gave companies a pretty reasonable excuse of why they saw earnings slow down and and such so i i think that uh what we have now is a quarter that uh with you know basically most of the quarter done we have a new banking crisis that i don't necessarily think it's over and i think that the the lasting effects from from this uh will be uh, tighter lending standards i think that uh, banks are going to be under a lot of scrutiny there was one out there today that was uh, being talked about as insolvent, and I'm not going to get into it. I don't do that. Um, 
it was a smaller bank, but uh, regardless, uh, one thing that uh, happened last year that I, I, I look at uh, attribution studies and, and specifically with the S&P and the NASDAQ 100. And one thing that uh, happened last year is that the top 10 NASDAQ stocks, the NDX, um, those top 10 stocks attributed for the majority of the losses for the 33% loss that we had last year. And the top five specifically were um, just under 50% of the total losses. And you had Amazon down almost 50%, Apple down 26, Meta down 64, Tesla down 65, Microsoft down 28%, NVIDIA down 50%. And so it's interesting. Um, I think a lot of, of what's occurred this quarter uh, has been the shift in positioning. And the shift, um, you can now look at it, where the top five stocks in the NDX include Apple, NVIDIA, Microsoft, Meta, and Tesla, those um, by themselves attribute to uh, 63% of the gains. And the top 10 um, by themselves really are 80% of the gain uh, by weights. And, and that's obvious. And, and we've seen this happen before. Uh, the thing that's different, I think, is that the valuations um, for these companies that have moved up are starting to move towards historical high high ranges, um, and and a couple of them. I mean, you can look at um, Apple, for example. It's no, it's not cheap. Uh, Nvidia is, is really really expensive for them right now. Uh, so I think that we we have this um, you know positioning move. Uh, it's been a really you know strong move. I, I will say that. Uh, I, I had a great year last year. Um, this year, I'm uh, treading water. I'm up on the year, but not by much. Um, <clears throat> I have taken a cautious approach uh, most recently uh, with technology, and I've uh, I've been uh, short some technology. Uh, I, you know, last year I covered a lot of technology, made uh, some good gains on the long side and short side, uh, but I covered some towards the end of the year. Uh, I didn't get the great signals that I had hoped that I would uh, for these to get in there and buy. And quite frankly, um, I'm not the type, it's just not my character to chase gains at, at this. That's just not in my nature. I don't chase things. Um, but I think overall the risk reward here is unfavorable, um, especially with the financials that continue to be very messy uh, on the 14th of April, we get the first of the big banks reporting. That should be rather interesting on those conference calls. Uh, it'll be interesting to see um, what the spillover is for the big banks, uh, because I remember one time that um, Bill Gross, before the great financial crisis and when the subprime lenders were starting to fail, he said, you know, that whales uh, need plankton to survive. And plankton are those little fish that, you know, clear off the algae and, and crap off the whales. And if there's no plankton, uh, the whales will die. So I'm not saying the whales, the big banks are going to die, uh, but we are seeing some plankton um, uh, pass away. And uh, I think that's something that we're going to have to watch. I think it's, uh, you really want to see strong banks uh, in a market, um, 
to basically because they're they you know it's the liquidity it's the funding um i think that's really really important and if the banks are under stress they will tighten up lending standards which they already have and i think that's going to be something that the lag effects of the fed uh, it'll start to become very evident this year it's not it, it's it's there but it's not uh debilitating um Again, I talked about the le uh, narrow leadership um, in the NDX, and I think that's unsustainable. Uh, I honestly, um, I would love to have gone back and said, "Sure, I'm I'm in long Nvidia, and I'm up eighty five percent. That would be great." Uh, Meta, uh, I actually did. I was long for a little bit off the lows, but I didn't stick with it, and it's up seventy one percent. Tesla, I cover. I'm still short the stock. I I have a gain in it. Um, my cost basis is a lot higher, but I did take off uh, the majority of my Tesla lower, and uh, that was uh, fortuitous. Um, just going back to one thing, um, now that we have basically a clean quarter, and I, I will say the banking crisis, that's one thing, but we don't have the, those really significant things that we had previously that would hurt demand. So the demand picture this quarter is going to be front and center on my mind to see how things play out. And the two stocks that I'm really focused on are Apple, because Tim Cook last quarter said, and he got the stock running on this, said we would have had a much better quarter if China wasn't locked down. So China's not locked down anymore. So I'm hoping for Tim's sake that uh, they have a much better quarter. I have a feeling that... Uh, it's going to be tough um, to see those, to see them really move the needle on an iPhone that looks like the three previous versions of the iPhone at a higher price point. So I think that's going to be tough. Um, as far as Tesla, that's the other one I'm focused on. Um, the estimates for their deliveries are coming out this Sunday, probably around noon Eastern time. And the consensus is 420 no pun intended, um, that's the number. I've talked to some of the Tesla bulls. I, 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 Dan Ives sent me his note and he's at 420. Uh, there's possibility that uh, we could see a little higher than that. And uh, that's one thing, but we have to look at it as far as the Tesla bulls will say, oh, it's a record quarter. Great, it's a record quarter, but last quarter they ratcheted down uh, their estimates for deliveries uh, down some from nearly 500 cars uh, down to 400 and it came out at 405 and that that was um, I mean and Tesla's up 58% um, since so um, <laughs> there you go but they've cut prices to move metal and that has uh, an effect on earnings and margins that I think um, are going to be rather um, stunning for some of the te Tesla bulls. I think that will hit earnings uh, throughout the entire year. Uh, Gordon Johnson, if he's around, uh, he put out um, a note uh, talking about what he thinks the the, the uh, profit per car, let's say it's $9,000, this year could be half that. So I think that's um, something that's going to be difficult. I think it's going to be an even more difficult quarter going forward. Uh, because they don't have any new cars coming out. Uh, their cars are a bit stale. Um, I, I think demand was pulled forward. So I think that's a risk right there. And um, 
you know, the, the backdrop of all this is that the Fed is going to pivot. And we've had this narrative that the Fed's going to pivot because inflation is coming down or actually the Fed started, you know, this whole new uh, Fed pivot and r- rate cuts coming this summer was due to the uncertainty and collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature and the turmoil and the backstop of all the banks. Uh, but I, I think that's um, if the banks can stabilize, and I think that for the most part they have, I know that's like a, a loaded thought because it could get a little bit dicey again. But if that um, is not in play, I think then we have the issue that people are going to start looking and the, the Fed are going to start looking at inflation data again. And I think inflation data will start to come down and moderate, but I don't think the risk, the, the, I think the risk is that it doesn't come down fast enough. And I think course remains really sticky. And I was having a long, I had a long conversation with Julian Brigden, who I think is one of the best uh, when it comes to macro and what the Fed is doing and inflation. And he, he, reiterated to me that um, he thinks the core is going to stay elevated throughout the entire year and that the Fed won't cut rates. They, he didn't really speculate that they're going to continue to raise or raise rates. Um, but he said they will pause if anything. Um, and I think that that is uh, overly um, hopeful thinking for a lot of the tech uh, companies that have, and people that are buying tech that, think that, oh, well, if interest rates are going lower, um, it's going to be game on for tech. I think it's tech is a cyclical industry, and a lot of people are looking over the valley called a recession uh, at what better times could come out of it. Uh, so you'll hear better things here and there with tech, and I think that the onus is on those companies to um, increase um show that the demand is still there and that they can beat numbers. I don't think numbers, um, I think Michael Cantro, if he's around, he would reiterate as well that um, numbers remain too high for earnings. And so I think that's um, something that, um, that that will be really, really important, this uh, Q1 earnings. Uh, but that being said, I am long some stuff. I'm not a you know, one-sided bear all the time. Um, I I was looking at all my trade ideas and I'm almost 50, I've been almost 50-50 um, longs and shorts uh, with closed ideas over the years. And um, I, I do like um, the way energy setting up. I think that energy has, a, there's a long trade there. Uh, it's not necessarily going to be, you know, as easy as when inflation was, uh, ripping higher and every commodity was going higher, but I do think that there's value there. Uh, I'm, I have a, about a 10% long position in the sector, the various stocks and ETFs. Um, I, I think materials also have some upside potential. And I, I think that um, uh, banks will set up um, perhaps after earnings uh, for a long trade, but I don't want to touch banks. I tried, um, briefly with some large banks and I, I exited those pretty quickly. Uh, I don't want to take a lot of chances right now in the market. And I don't think people need to necessarily think that, Oh, we're going to go to all time highs. Uh, the work that I look at uh, with DeMarc indicators uh, haven't been as clear as I would, have, as I previously have seen uh, within the NASDAQ 100, 
we are starting to see more of uh, DeMarc exhaustion cell countdowns. Uh, taking sometimes I'll I'll do a uh, I'll, I'll set up a uh, more strict version of the DeMarc sequential, and the NDX with that is on day 11 of 13. So after you get a 13, the rule of thumb is you should see a price reversal or at least some sort of stalling uh, within um, five to 10 days. And so I think that's uh, something that's that's possible um, in that sector. Uh, we don't see a lot of shorts in the market as much as it sounds like shorts are always talked about, um, but the data doesn't really reflect that. Um, for example, um, NVIDIA is, and NVIDIA and AMD are two I'm short, and I recently shorted those, so it's not like I've, you know, I've, I'm down 86% in NVIDIA. Um, I think I'm down maybe 2%, um, and I'm slightly profitable in AMD. But uh, NVIDIA has a uh, days to cover. It's less than one day. Uh, it's remained low. There's been tons of call buying. And uh, AMD, let me just run it here. AMD has uh, 0.43 days to cover. And there's also been tons of call buying. Now, call buyers can be right for a brief moment. But what happens and what I've seen, especially in the last few years, is that you actually want to fade heavy call buying. And you also want to fade heavy put buying. And it works the same way. I think that with the proliferation of short-term options, I think that uh, it's, it's actually been a better indicator versus short interest as far as uh, short-term positioning with traders. So I, I'm looking at that as, um, as, as a risk where you have too many people uh, buying, buying calls within that narrow um, handful of tech names that, uh, that have, have moved up already. And I think that that's uh, something important. For example, I just want to say that uh, at the end of December, there was a heavy put buying in AMD at the lows. And I'll run back to NVIDIA. And there was heavy put buying in, in, in NVIDIA. And I, I actually, I can post it on Twitter. But there was heavy uh, put buying, which I think started the squeeze higher. And uh, I think that that is really important that now we've shifted to the other side of it. And, um, you know, it, that's generally what I'm seeing, George, um, I mean, among other things, but uh, that's, that's my current positioning. Um, I do, ha again, I have um, longs and I'm, I'm long, uh, several, you know, ideas. Um, again, I, I really do like uh, the way energy setting up here. Um, but uh, I think that uh, this is not the market you want to be chasing tech. And, uh, and as always, if I'm wrong, I'll jump on my sword and uh, eat it, take losses if I have to, and manage my risk. But that's generally how I'm seeing the whole world right now. That's absolutely terrific, Tommy. Thank you so much for that. What a, what a tour de force. You cover so many things so effortlessly in a uh, relatively short period of time. One just general uh, observation or question I have for you, and that is regardless of your views, and we've known each other for a few years, um, it sounds like, and you touched on this, you, you don't really want to swing the bat terribly hard right now. It's not an environment for, for huge bets. In other words, your conviction level, uh, whatever it is, uh, relative to opinions I've heard you express in the past, it, it, 
is not is not as high. You don't want you don't want to dig in in a super strong way now. Is that is that fair? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And and I'm you know, I'm agnostic many times when it comes to being either long or short and um I I desperately want to find longs and and because I I I have more more of my clients and subscribers want to see long ideas and again i don't chase some of the nonsense um of the tech names that that run up um there's times where i'm, I'm i am long them but uh, at this point i'm not i'm not taking big big swings right now i'm trying to look at some value-oriented long ideas i thought that uh, the energy names uh, looked good uh, i started buying them uh the middle uh yeah the middle of 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 March, I started, I started buying uh, materials and energy and they've, they've done okay. Um, but no, it's not a time where you want to take, you know, massive swings. And one thing I always recommend and, and state um, is I don't, <clears throat> sorry, I'm joking here. Uh, I don't take a uh, big, you know, weighted positions. Uh, my largest weighting uh, is 5%. And that's, um, that, that is so I can allow myself some wiggle room and I'm not stopped out. Um, and I'm, and I'm honestly, um, I'm actually very human, uh, in the sense that I have anxiety, um, when I am too big in something and I don't want to be in that frame of mind, I can be short something 5%. If it goes against me, 10%, 10%, it's not going to change uh, my life uh, dramatically. And that's generally uh, what I try to stress to people. You can make money and you can do really well uh, when you um, stay diversified, keep your sizing prop proper and not out of whack. I mean, I, I'll tell you, I think that's something that you and I, George, have talked about. And uh, sometimes you don't want to swing for the fences um, and you want to just allow the process to work. And if you have a position that um, you have a 2% pos size position in and it's working, it, it, a lot of those can add up. So I, I really am about risk management when I'm managing a portfolio. I could do better, obviously, if, if I weighted myself larger. But um, it, again, it's just it fits my personality. Makes a lot of sense. Hey, question, Tommy. What do you any take on uh, interest rates of the bond market right here? Uh, well, it, that's been trading like, you know, meme stocks, the two year, um, you know, look, it, it, it closed, um, at four, you know, almost four twelve, and it's, it's bounced off the, the lows, which it almost hit three and a half percent. And now we're at four and 11, four eleven. Look, I think that, um, it does have the potential to move higher. I think the, the, again, I think that the, the big volatile, um, down move in rates uh, was was clearly uh, something that legacy shorts in the bond market got taken out and and crushed. So I think that ex exacerbated the the moves. So it it's possible that I could see rates drift a little higher, drift higher again. And you know we have some inflation data coming up. We have earnings coming up. Um, and I, I think that uh, it, it's it, to me, it, it looks like rates could could move higher. 
Um, you know, one thing also, if we start to see um, a bull steepening in on the curves, I think that will lead us towards a recession. And I, I do believe we will see a recession. I'm not, I don't want to like say when, but it's, um, it's quite possible that we will have a recession this year. And that's not very edgy or anything um, enlightening. But I think that, uh, again, I think uh, tech investors are looking over the valley of the recession and um, putting a lot of hope that the Fed's going to come in and cut rates. And even if they do cut rates, as we've seen in the past, uh, cutting rates doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it's the all clear because we've seen markets um, when when bad news becomes bad news um, that um, that weighs on on that uh, on the equity market um, and and companies earnings. So that's kind of how I see uh, right now with rates. That's terrific. Okay, let's move along here. Let's bring um, some of the. Uh some of the community into the conversation. Um, Let's start off with not Chase Coleman. Hey, not Chase Coleman. How you doing? Josh, Uh, hold on uh, a second. I just want to say um, Josh and I, um, uh, we share a lot of ideas and uh, we don't necessarily agree all the time with ideas, but I do have a lot of respect for Josh. He's a younger fund manager and um, has absolutely nailed it on many, many ideas. He was long, his largest position was meta off the lows and uh, absolutely crushed it. He was long NVIDIA. And I think he'll tell tell us about that. But he's also been um, pretty adamant about um, the crypto space. I'm not a crypto person. And I'm listening to what he has to say. It may not be regarding the price of Bitcoin. But I think it's the, the point that uh, we talked about earlier, and I wanted him to come on was uh, some of the, the news with Binance. So Josh, give it a go. And, and everybody should follow him. And, and Josh, thank you for, uh, thank you for showing up. Tommy uh, told me about you, so I'm really keen that you're here. Uh, take it away, the floor is yours. Absolutely, thanks George and Tom. Good to hear from you, man. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll have a quick tidbit on NVIDIA. I'm, I'm, I've been sort of a long-term NVIDIA bull and obviously that's been quite a rewarding, but at a certain point, I think price is price, and right now the price is wrong. Uh, I'm not saying that there's any kind of fundam- like severe fundamental of the t- t- deterioration, but generally, um, you know, when it's reached you know insane levels like it did uh, late 2021, the reversals are not five or ten percent; they're forty, fifty percent. Right, so it's at its most egregious valuation in its history. Um, and I'm not saying that the AI craze is uh, unwarranted. I think that AI is real. I just think that uh, we've probably pulled forward a significant amount of the returns um, for a stock like NVIDIA. So the asymmetric risk of reward here is to the downside, um, unquestionably. But uh, I'll I'll spend a little bit more time on on Binance and Coinbase and just the broader crypto space because I think it's important. Um, and obviously, there's been a lot of news coming out this week, particularly from Binance and Coinbase, and I think it has some very severe or a potentially severe ramifications for the entire space that um, 
is largely propped up by uh, wash trading on Binance. Um, so just to kind of give everyone some background um, on the situation. Uh, so earlier this week, Binance was issued a CFTC complaint. Obviously, the CFTC is a civil uh, regulatory agency, so there is no criminal enforcement action as of yet. Um, but reading through the CFTC report, um, it is incredibly, incredibly revealing and some really scathing information. So it's very clear that Binance launders money for the worst human beings and entities on earth. Uh, so one being Hamas. So that's nice. Um, and other terrorist organizations, uh, sex traffickers, drug dealers, and they got access to CZ's. Uh, CZ is the founder and CEO of Binance. If you haven't heard of him, uh, they have access to his signal messages and there is a clear um uh a clear intent to find ways to avert any kind of regulation or any sort of rules uh that that are in place uh but i think that that letter or that complaint by the CFTC is really a warning to CZ that you're going to get arrested and this isn't a us I mean, this isn't just a U.S. problem. This is a multinational problem. And I believe it'll be a multinational take down of CZ. If FTX was Bear Stearns, Binance is Lehman. Arguably, and I can go into to the data for you in a second, but it's arguably a larger equivalent to Lehman just because of the sheer uh, uh, a monopolized uh, market share that it holds over trading volume and liquidity. Um, but yeah, I think it was a warning that CZ is eventually going to get arrested. I think it is inevitable. Um, so just to kind of get into it a little bit more, if anyone doesn't know what wash trading is, uh, just think of it as fake uh, liquidity. So essentially it's a small, it, you know, it involves a small group of, uh, whales if you will uh who control highly levered positions and trading activity on a specific venue what is that venue that venue is binance okay and by the way i know that people might be confused about binance.us and binance i'm talking about binance the main platform and another thing uh if you read the cftc complaint um cz has you know, it's not illegal to use a VPN, but it is illegal to encourage users to circumvent the law in order to gain access to the platform. So that's just another thing. But anyway, uh, regarding watch trading. So essentially, there are a small group of traders or, or institutions who control all of the trading volume and create the illusion of a liquidity when it's really just a small group of entities that are controlling the flows right so let's just break the numbers down okay so when ftx went bust in october of last year binance had 48 percent of spot trading volume of crypto and uh 58 percent of 
derivatives volume. Now, what's interesting is that derivatives actually control the vast ma majority of the trading volume. And derivatives are not allowed in the United States for crypto, right? So uh, in order to trade derivatives, you likely have to choose an offshore venue. And Binance is that primary offshore venue. So in the event of what I believe will eventually be a takedown of CZ and Binance, that would lead to a likely a run on Binance. And if there is a run on Binance, essentially your primary counterparty goes defunct and liquidity evaporates, leading to widespread contagion across the entire industry and a massive liquidity crisis um, across cryptocurrencies. So as of February, uh, if you look at the current market share that Binance holds, uh, they now have 61 or actually 62% of spot trading volumes and 63% of derivatives volumes. So essentially without Binance, there is no crypto market. And Does everyone hear me? Yeah, go ahead. And, and, and by the way, J J yep. um, this is really, really interesting. Uh, just I want to caution you, though. Um, I don't want the <laughs> crypto is one of those uh, polarizing topics. So absolutely. If we, yeah. if we could if we could kind of get to I mean, I could listen to this all day. I, I love what you're saying, but I don't want to I don't want the, the room to be hijacked in a crypto discussion. So. Um, you know, maybe turn to like how we're supposed to make money out of this, whether it's Coinbase or, Absolutely. or whatever. Well, right. One thing, so, one thing, um, George, I, and I'll say this, um, Josh, I don't think is necessarily saying that he's anti-crypto. I think he's just concerned no, about the liquidity. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. No, no, Tommy, I, I understand that. I mean, imply otherwise. Yeah. I'm, I'm just saying crypto tends to be a sort of a sideshow for a lot of folks. You know, I want to talk about the yeah. markets and stuff. That's all. But, but Josh, this is fascinating. Keep going, but try to bring it to sort of an investment i will and i'm actually i'm actually about to get Good. to the point Good. don't Good. worry <laughs> all right so i've heard a lot of people say that the collapse of binance is good for coinbase right i've heard that okay so i am short coinbase just full of disclosure um here's why it's not good for coinbase right so coinbase is a u.s based exchange a u.s based regulated exchange uh, and in the United States, you are not allowed to trade derivatives. Okay. So if Binance is gone, Coinbase can't pick up the slack. So they cannot fill the hole of a liquidity. Okay. So that's a huge problem. Okay. And aside from uh, the contagion effect that will occur if Binance were to collapse, uh, Coinbase has a lot of structural issues. Um, so it's very clear that other than Bitcoin and Ethereum, every other, you know, altcoin, shitcoin, whatever you want to call it on Coinbase is an unregistered security. Okay. And all of the juice in Coinbase's fees come from the take rates on the non BTC Ethereum uh, coins and tokens. So once all of those are delisted, during an environment where there is compressed uh, uh, fees and volume, 
this is only going to make their operating model more ugly or uglier. <laughs> um, so I don't see the fundamental short to medium term bull case for Coinbase. I've heard a lot of crypto bros and, you know, uber bullish Bitcoin people saying that, you know, they're going to benefit. And I'm like, maybe somewhere way down the line they do, but you cannot ignore the structural issues that are in their way. And I thought it was hilarious because recently uh, they decided to launch or proceed in the process of launching a over or offshore venue for trading. And I think that's completely tone deaf because one, it's still pretty fresh after the FTX collapse, number one. And number two, uh, you know, crypto can't really go mainstream without U.S. legislation. So for them to play regulatory arbitrage, I think, is incredibly poor taste on their part. It shows some level of hubris that we don't really care about, you know, the country that we're actually domiciled in, which is the United States. So I just think it's just poor form all around but i hope that that gives people some color um on the massive contagion risks and the structural problems that coinbase has that's, that's that. and if anyone wants to, to speak more offline i'm happy that's to. absolutely terrific by the way do you think this is a 2023 event yes got it um okay that's that's good to know i'm sure there'll be plenty of questions that was fantastic don't go anywhere don't Thank go anywhere. You. I'm sure there'll be some follow-up questions. I'd like to move along. Um, let's go to uh, Bagholder. Uh, he's been waiting for a while. Welcome, Bagholder. The floor is yours. Bagholder, are you there? Okay. Uh, let's go to uh, let's go to Mark Newman, please. Mark, can you hear me? Tommy, are you, Thomas Thornton, are you able to hear me? I can hear you. Yeah. I don't know what is going on here. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Got you loud and clear. Got it. All right. I can hear you. Okay. I can hear is you. Bag holder there. Bag holder, you there? Guess not. Newman, Mark Newman. I think you said you couldn't hear. Maybe you should leave and come back in. All right. Let's keep moving here. Let's go to AJ. AJ, the floor is yours. Can you hear me, AJ? Hey, I can hear you. Hey, go good forward. afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, so echoing some of what um, Tommy said, right? So, energy as well. Um, one company that I started slowly building a position in is VET, Vermilion Energy. Uh, it's a company that has an FCFE 40% yield moving forward, and they've also paid down $1 billion of debt since COVID, and they continue to return cash to shareholders. So it's something that I've been watching for a while. 10% um, dividend, and is trading at an 18% discount right now. So I slowly started adding in, and I think the, the fears and energy really started maybe two weeks ago when it started to get compressed due to a stronger dollar, risk aversion. You know, there was some West African crude issues going on, yada, yada, yada. But I started slowly uh, scaling into that company as well as another energy company called SU. So kind of mimicking very similar to what uh, Tom, Thomas said over here on the right side of our panel. Um, the other side also, I know we mentioned banks, not longing banks. That, that's a great point. But the one bank that I am slowly building a position in is Schwab. Uh, plan to hold that long term. I know it's going to struggle for the next six months to a year. So I'm not scaling in very large at this time, but I'm slowly positioning myself there. The other side of trades that I'm playing is TLT. 
obviously it's very impacted by interest rates and the expectations since you know they've been compressing whether or not they're right or wrong we will find out but it has obviously been helping TLT up so I've slowly been adding since the 102 103 area and we'll keep watching that for some time uh, another thing I like to play as I do very closely is in the bond market is a company well it's not bond it's called JAA so it's for triple A's for bonds uh, pays a monthly dividend annualizes about four to five percent depending on the LIBOR rate so obviously that fluctuates and right now it's kind of like a hold uh, you know money markets had another 68 billion dollars go in this week so I think that added pressure will continue on that side of the market uh, as long as this bank story quote unquote keeps going uh, so those are those are where the where I'm playing it. Um, short term, you know, I I day trade and invest, but but yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing for medium to long term. Thanks very much, AJ. Thank Appreciate the comments. Okay, let's go to uh, Mr. Newman. Are you there? Can you hear me? I don't know what is going on here. <laughs> All right, let's go to uh, Robert. Robert, uh, floor is yours. Hey guys, good afternoon, Tommy. How are you, sir? Mr. Bendock, how are you? This was uh, one of my uh, derivative traders uh, extraordinaire back um, when I uh, had my fund. Uh, so nice to hear you, Bob. Thanks, Tommy. So just commenting on what Tom said earlier about uh, NVIDIA and some, some very high call volume. Today, in particular, on the options that expire tomorrow, between the 265 strike and the two. 80 strike there was probably about 177, 87, 92, about 135,000 or 140,000 options that traded. Go out one month to the April expiration, and there's there's essentially no open interest uh, um, or no volume whatsoever. And 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 that in and of itself is interesting. Maybe people are playing for uh, a squeeze in it tomorrow. Who knows? But the other thing to consider is when you have a, a massive move in a stock like we've seen at NVIDIA, one of the things that people do is called substitute position, right? So you're long NVIDIA from 190, it's at 260 now. You think you have more room, but that's a lot of meat to leave on the bone. Sell out of your common stock and replace it with a slightly out of the money option, which will give you some more upside, but clearly limited downside you ring your register you keep a little bit on the table and you keep your long bias um that was that was the uh the point on that the other thing that i found interesting too is when we looked at the two-year when tommy was talking about the two-year there was a massive short squeeze and, and i'm tommy be sure he well aware of this but there was a fund a very large hedge fund they got caught off sides and you never see volatility in fixed income the way not even in third world country bonds which you see this volatility but somebody got caught on the wrong side it ran the two yield up dramatically uh and there were also a few of the um funds in the in the business that had leveraged positions that also got a little bit hurt so those are the two things that i picked up on uh, I'm not a crypto guy, so I really can't uh, comment, but I did find it highly informational and I did learn. So thank you for that uh, insight. Hey, hey, Robert, let me ask you something. You you were touching on uh, NVIDIA um, and tying that comment together with what Tommy was talking earlier about how large cap tech is kind of stretching so on and so forth. Do you share that sort of uh, bigger view, be a little bit cautious about large cap tech? Um, 
as much as I don't have the, 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 the prowess that Tommy has on the minutia and the micro aspect of the, an individual company, I just look at it this way. This has been a rocket ride. This has been a, a vol kind of dampening uh, experience for from the risk side. But you, you're seeing people chase calls. And, and that, to me, is always the top. Always the top. I would if if I had if I had um, an opportunity to express my view in it, it would not be through a long call position. I would if I substituted. Yes. If I switched out of stock. Great. I would have a long call. But if I had to speculate on one position going for the next couple of weeks or months, I, I would definitely consider uh, owning owning puts rather for my personal bias uh, rather than anything else. Let's hey, go. Bob. Yeah, let's well, go. Just 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 a sec. Um, so, Bob, you're one of the most seasoned uh, derivative traders I know, um, and I, I just would love to get your thoughts on the short-term options and how that's uh, skewed the market uh, for you know the, the monthly strikes and uh, your thoughts as far as risk. Um, I, and I'm talking to again to a person and asking a question to a person that. Uh, he has seen more derivative flow than anybody else on this um, this spaces. So, um, and he's the most humble, uh, generous person um, I know. And uh, so, th- your thoughts uh, always very calm and uh, collected. And uh, I value um, everything you say. Well, listen, I, I thank you very much for that. I uh, I'm. I'm humbled and appreciative of of what you just said. Well, with respect to the zero day options, um, let's face it, they're they're lottery tickets, right? And the the thing that you have to understand is the risk parameter of a one day option is identical to that of an expiring option um, on a monthly, a quarterly, or whatever the case is on the same date. So you have the risk as the owner of the option of clearly just losing all your premium. I think it adds to higher volatility in, in, in the uh, uh, individual names, maybe a tad into index world, but that's not as reflected um, as it should be. I would say this, the best trade I've ever seen in the last, I'm going to say maybe five years, maybe even 10 years, about two weeks ago when, when the fed was, was chipping on the on the, uh, when, uh, when the fed was on TV, the most amazing thing is as soon as Powell changed his tone, there was a put on the spider. That was the same day expiration. It traded 10 cents, 10 cents. And it expired at $3.69 in 55 minutes. Now, those are the lot of tickets I like to play, right? Those are the things if you have, if, if you want to take a risk, put something in there like that and, and, and let that be, I hate to say your, your, your piss money, your, listen, you want to take a shot in the market, buy something for a dime on these. I don't suggest chasing them. I don't suggest following them with, uh, right. you know, with like a, a war stick. But hey, you want to take a shot? Something's offered a dime. Buy it. 
Got it. That's that, that's and, great, Bob. That's great. Um, Want to work some other folks in the conversation? Yeah, we, yes, sir. Thank we, you for we, the time, George. No, no, stay up there. I'm sure there'll be some follow-up questions. Josh, I want to ask you. Um, you were making a comment about Nvidia being stretched. Do you think? Do you think yeah. more generally speaking, large cap tech is pretty stretched? Uh yes, it is stretched uh, generally. But I think the issue with you know, I think it frustrates a lot of people on why there just hasn't been a meaningful correction in a lot of these names is because truly they're just in every IRA, they're in every ETF, they're in every mutual fund, there's always a bid. And I think when, you know, PMs and asset managers don't really know what to do and don't really know, uh, you know, the certainty of the outlook, they just kind of flock to what is quote-unquote safe or thought thought to be as safe you know i mean all those names i mean i mean i i'm excluding nvidia and tesla and the and the mega caps but the magma names uh you know they have a lot of cash they have a lot of free cash flow they almost trade as bonds in my opinion right they're almost like the bond equivalents of the equity market so there's always a bid there and that's why they're just rewarded higher multiples but they are all stretched and i think it's just i think tom posted something about this and i retweeted it but he showed that basically the top five names in nasdaq contributed or was it the top five or the top 10 tom but yeah i mean it was the top five names attributed to 50 percent of the total gains in the ndx year to date it's actually not it's actually 63 percent and the top 10 is 80 percent and that's and that's wow. you know that's by design because of the weightings of and the market caps of these companies yeah. obviously right right but that's not yeah i mean that's not healthy to have that concentration and performance in the market in the long run you know so i am worrisome i do believe that nvidia does have i mean like i said i think it has the best risk reward to the downside after being a bull for you know, a long, long while and, you know, being in and out of it on the long side. I've actually never short the stock or then long puts, but I am long puts for uh, a September. Uh, so I do expect some reversion to some sort of mean over the next six months or so. Uh, That's yeah. helpful. Thank you. All right. We're going to try Newman one more time. Mark, are you there? Can you hear us? Jesus, Mark, I don't know what your problem is. <laughs> this is just not your day. Um, maybe, I know you've got internet, maybe turn your phone off and then turn it back on. We're, we're, we're trying, man. Uh, all right, let's keep moving here. Let's go to, uh, oh, my good friend, Bobby J. Mr. J, who knows more about credit than pretty much anybody in these spaces. Good to see you, Bobby. What's going on, man? Hey, how are we're you? Good. What's going on? Uh, all, all good. So, as you know, um, when we were um, on spaces um, over a year ago and everybody was fixated with the HYG as a proxy for high yield spreads. And um, you suggested I keep an eye on, um, on credit spreads and sound the alarm. My, uh, my thesis was that this is going to be a duration bubble first and a credit uh, issue second. Uh, because over the last 30 years, the modified duration of uh, sovereign bonds has doubled, which means 
that the price sensitivity to changes in yields uh, it was higher than ever because the world was flooded uh, with zero coupon bonds when we were at the zero bound. Now, I never really uh, thought that we'd get to this level of short-term interest rates. You did. Uh, you said the economy was um, going to be hard to um, to slow down and inflation was going to be hard to slow down. So I didn't really uh, appreciate uh, to the extent it did until about uh, three months ago that um, this is going to be a threat to deposits. And Ed, George, you're probably one of the few people in the room who uh, remember Reg Q. And <clears throat> when we had Reg Q, uh, deposit uh, rates had a ceiling on them. And when they removed Reg, Reg Q, uh, deposit rates uh, went up considerably. Uh, and people like Fidelity and money markets took over. The, um, the zero bound rates was like simulating Reg Q again. And uh, another thesis that I have as a permanent thesis is that we have excess capacity in the banking system. Uh, we're still um, trying to right size this post deregulation of banks where we've gone from 18,000 banks down to uh, 4,000 banks, but we still have too many banks to, um, there, there's not enough loan and credit demand out there to feed the beast. So as a result, uh, banks ended up doing more treasuries and and increasing their securities portfolio and mortgage-backed portfolios from 15% of total assets to 25% of total assets, and loans have um, have in the port in the bank portfolios have declined um, by about five or six percent over the last decade. So I think um, we 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 have to constantly as because of this excess capacity in banks, banks uh, continue to create problems. Um, you know, they have this weird codependent relationship. You know, it's like two parents. They have the Treasury on as one parent. They have the, the, the Fed as another parent. And, you know, this, this kid, the banking system, keeps getting in trouble and ignoring curfews. So I'm, I'm a bit concerned that I think we're going to get one uh, less uh, big bond rally over the uh, next year or so. Uh, I know Michael Howell has said that. I've been going into the front end of the curve a bit early, but we had break-evens that were uh, sufficient enough to to cover your, your back if you were wrong. Uh, in other words, when you buy two-year notes at, at 5%, when you buy two-year notes at 4%, you have room for two-year notes to go to 4.5%, 5.5%, or 6%, and not lose any money. So we're going to see um, that continue. So... Uh, I think this is the last uh, great bond rally that we're going to have, and then we're going to enter a new era of a higher interest rate regime that is going to take years um, to um, to undo. Because bear in mind when we uh, when rates went up and um, and cracked above, I think four percent on five year rates in 1969 or 70, whatever year that was. Uh, it took about 30 years for them to get back down. So uh, because of debt levels, I think we'll be seeing that. But And we need to fix this banking system because, um, you know, it's getting more lopsided and uh, there's going to be debates about community banks. But I think 
we've had a lack of consolidation because uh, zero interest rates pushed up the valuations on the smaller banks that kept them from being attractive as takeover uh, because you can't buy a smaller bank because it's uh, it's not accretive. And also the bigger banks uh, are going to be uh, prohibited about uh, doing acquisitions. But I also think that we're going to possibly see one of the top five or six banks um, kind of break up. I think the market will uh, reward eventually a bigger bank for breaking up and, you know, for example, taking a consumer business out and spinning that off and maybe making the, um, the commercial banking side of it or the investment banking side of it or the custodial side of it. Uh, separate banks, and uh, but we're we're definitely going to see a a restructuring by the market, and maybe with the boost from from regulators uh, over the next uh, balance of this decade uh, of the banking system. Yeah, so that's it, it in a yeah, nutshell. Yeah, Bobby, me. two two questions, please. One, um, even if we don't have Armageddon, um, is the outlook for bank profitability uh, pretty? Uh, downbeat going forward as you see deposits leaving and you know their cost of funds going up and so on and so forth. I mean, so e even if the world doesn't come to an end, I mean, the, the, the banks act like, 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 you know, like, like they, they act like garbage. And so, so even yeah. if you, even, even yeah. if you don't believe in, you know, commercial real estate going to zero, isn't the outlook for banks still pretty, pretty challenged? Yeah, it is. But bear in mind, you know, we can part of this will get fixed and you'll get a rally in bank stocks with one big bond rally. Right. Right. So if if the if the five year note, you know, heads back down south of three uh, percent, that will not stop everybody from jumping back into to banks. So you have to be pretty flexible uh, in order to to get this right. Um, and I'd like to hear anybody else's thoughts on that. But I, it's hard for me to imagine that if um, monetary policy does uh, finally uh, sink its teeth into the economy, that we wouldn't get a bond rally. And it's hard for me to imagine that with a mid or front end curve rally, that we would not get a bank stock rally. Right. But, you know, absolutely correct. Um, I don't see any reason why um, that deposit outflows shouldn't con continue, especially when we go back and see that we're going to have a new interest rate regime with higher rates. Right. And so, I mean, are banks investable right now one way or the other? Or are they just probably, or is it, or is it too opaque? Or are they problematic? Well, you know, I, I, I have uh, long short positions in banks. Um, and I think, um, I think part of them are investable, like maybe the the custody banks uh, are investable, but the valuations are not good. Mm -hmm. They're they're just not good. And I never look at uh, price to book because people have, you know people were buying Credit Suisse and and Citigroup on pi price to book. Um, you know that's the ultimate value trap. But um, I I think you got to be really nimble and. Um, and, you know, I don't think being nimble is a, uh, you know, is consistent with investable. Got it. Makes sense. P please stay on stage. I know this is going to be a topic of uh, further uh, discussion and interest. Uh, Michael, good to see you. The floor is yours. What's up? A couple Michael? Of... Yep. 
Michael, Michael, hey, got a terrible connection. Hello. Yeah, go ahead. You have you were in the matrix, uh, but go go ahead. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, first, uh, it was interesting on the Street Insider they classified the Nvidia move as a next generation AI uh, deployment and a rotation into tech stocks as safe haven plays. Um, I have a question for Tommy. Um, with uh, the U.S. dollar, I mean, it's taken quite a pounding. Um, it seems like now the dominant theme in FinTwit is the end of the U.S. dollar hegemony um, and the de-dollarization. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are from the technicals on that. And I have one other question. Um, I don't know what I did to offend you. I am a perma bear. But um, if you could unblock me, because I have to ship to another uh, alias just to see your work, and I'm a huge fan of your work. Okay, I don't know what... There you have it. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, I unblocked you, but I'm not sure. I was drinking water just now. Um, I almost choked. Um, I'm not sure um, why I blocked you. Um, pardon it. Um, Please don't block okay. me, because I love okay, your work. We're all, good. We're, all, we're all good now. Sometimes, it's, you know... Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the dollar just keeps, you know, drifting in this lower. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of in a little bit of a concern about the dollar. Uh, first of all, it's still, I mean, let's just go off of DXY. Um, it's still above the lows that we saw back in the beginning of February, February 2nd. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it, it could challenge that. And um, I, so on my daily chart, it, 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 if we make, if we hold those lows and have some sort of reversal, and I'm not sure we will, um, then, you know, I think we could, you know, see a rebound towards 108. Uh, that's, that's just sort of the, the bullish case. The bearish case on the dollar is that the weekly uh, that I'm looking at for the DXY has a DeMarc uh, countdown in progress, sequential countdown in progress. And that's only on week six of 13. If that breaks, um, I have a, a price objective of around 95 on the DXY. And, you know, I think the, the, there's the risk and reward for a lower dollar. And if you remember, Way back, um, we had a uh, we had a couple Fed chairmen that were just fine with the dollar falling apart because it it helped uh, U.S. multinational companies uh, with their earnings. I I, I think that uh, just one side note: if anybody any company says that they had dollar uh, problems with the dollar exchange rate this quarter, I, I just my head will explode. Um, because they complain the entire, they blame the dollar going up uh, continuously, and now it's near uh, lows, and it will be near the low for the whole quarter. So you've had this, you know, one thing that is a positive potential for earnings um, is that, that you've had a dollar weakness. Uh, so that that could be a potential, a uh, little bit of a tailwind for companies if they still fuck it up and, you know blame the dollar then uh, you know you basically should short the stock um so that's that's kind of my thought on the dollar right now it's got to hold those levels 
uh, if it doesn't, then I think we have some, right. you know, we have some further downside. That's it, technically. Thanks, Tommy. Appreciate that. Let's keep moving here because we got a lot of people who want to ask questions, and I want to get everyone in. Robert, are you there? We tried you earlier. Can you hear us, Robert? I don't know what's happened to Robert. Yes, right. I can. Yeah, if you I have can. a quick question, Robert, go for it. Floor is yours. No, no, I was just, I was just in the queue. I was just we, in we the queue. I, I spoke with we you before. George, is Mark Newman around? Yeah, I'm here. There you are. Okay, I'm now, let's go. I'm now sitting camped out on top of my Wi-Fi router because I'm. I had just major issues. Okay. Um, I wanted to just throw. a I'm reconnecting. So can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. Hear you. Well, someone mentioned about the, uh, the, the, the banks earlier just before, and we had it saying in Japan, when you merge a big bank with a bad bank, you just get a big, bad bank. And if you look at eight, three, zero one JP on, um, Bloomberg, I don't know how you find it on other systems, but eight, three, zero one space JP, that's the bank of Japan. And if you look at this stock, it doesn't trade a lot. It's really just a, um, a marker, to be honest, but um, like 10 shares, 100 shares a day. But um, if you look at that since 1989, it has been one way straight down. And I had the pleasure of speaking to Jim Bianco um, about a month or so ago in Miami. And he made an interesting point about the U.S. banks and how they've been since actually the GFC in terms of a performance. And it's the same kind of deterioration. And, <clears throat> excuse me, if we think about Citigroup, it's not 46 bucks. It's $4.60, right? So I think that we are undergoing a slow motion sort of replay in the banking system here in the U.S. now. Now, I don't know where it leads in the end. I mean, yeah, you could have everyone saying Bitcoin this and that and whatever. I'm not, like, you know, I'm not that prescient to, to be able to figure that out. But I do have the, the financials in, in on my radar all the time. I mean, listening to Janet Yellen last week talk about the regional banks, and she sort of said, well, I don't know. Maybe we'll just have five banks in the end, City, J.P. Morgan, and everyone else. Right. So, 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 Mark, cutting to the chase, where is your head on bank stocks? Are they investable one way or the other? Jeez, man, I, I don't know because I think we're in a new rates paradigm. But again, I, I think that we're slowly being e weaned off of the banks in one form or another. I mean, I saw a tweet today that J.P. Morgan was collecting $750 million bucks a day from the Fed while they're paying depositors nothing. I mean, people are going to wake up to that. So I, I look, George, I think you could trade them, of course, but I think it's a slow deterioration um, over time. Um, there, there's other places to do better, I, I, I kind of think. Got it. Hey, one, hey, hey, one thing. Yeah, and Mark, one thing. Just, um, oh, and, go ahead. I'll just jump in there. Um, quick question. You know, we've had this regulatory problem with getting through any merger, and um, do you think that that could open up where the regulatory environment will open up and allow banks to merge a little easier? I mean, I think that unfortunately, I'm, I'm kind of like the same with you, like. One plus one equals one, but if two banks, two regional banks, merge, and I, I've got this from a good friend of mine who is at Sandler, you know that that they can do a lot of cost cutting 
to survive and get through uh, difficult periods. Um, do you think that that's something that we will start to see? I'm, I'm skeptical of that, but just something to ask. I mean, I kind of think that those, it sounds silly, but I think those who play ball get the easier passes in those situations. Like just thinking back to long-term, right? There were two banks that didn't participate in the bailout, right? Bear and Lehman. And we saw what happened the next crisis. So it's in everyone's interest in all of these places, these littler banks, these smaller blanks, banks to play the game, right? Like in the FRC bailout or whatever we're calling that from last week or whatever, 30 billion came in from a handful of banks. It was like four major banks and two smaller, Morgan and Goldman, and then five other little ones. All those 10, it was like if they didn't participate, the next time the crap hits the fans, they're done, right? So I feel like the littler guys could become like merger candidates, but you know, they have to play along, play by the rules and make sure they know where they're buttering their bread to, 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 for the ease of that merger to be, so to speak. Mark, Mark, thanks for the comments on banks. Stay there because, uh, the next speaker, uh, future, uh, knows a lot about banks future. If you can hear me, the floor is now yours future. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Hey, Hey George, how are you, man? Nice to talk to you. Go for it, man. Um, Thanks. Okay. So yeah, I'll, um, I'll actually try to keep it somewhat brief because there's, you know, a lot of talent here, but I'm, I'm happy to kind of just keep the conversation going and, you know, answer questions and, and pose some too. Um, I think the bottom line, George, is, you know, you know, this from some previous conversations uh, we've had, I, I tend to be pretty bullish in general. And I don't think I've heard anybody kind of estimate the amount of uh, can credit contraction that this banking issue is going to have. So um, I'm sort of very bearish with one or two major caveats. And so just to rewind a little bit, you know, if I look technically, what's interesting is the Qs and TLT and gold, they all look pretty similar to me and they all look pretty bullish. Um, But I also think that, you know, not all three can work. Um, And so what I'm thinking is, and this actually kind of goes uh, exactly to Bobby Jay's point, I think we either need to see a massive rally at the long end of the curve, or there's going to be some some huge problems uh, in the banks. So the available for so so like the way, you know, banking and bank balance sheets work, is you basically have economic issues, and then accounting issues. And to me, the only piece that the market is focused on right now are accounting issues. And what I mean by that is if you put if you put securities into your available for sale portfolio, those securities are marked to market and they hit your book value. So those are reflected, you know, on your balance sheet quarterly. Um, The other and much larger categories, which have an equal economic impact, but are not being reflected are the held to maturity portfolios and then the loan portfolios. Um, and in the case of the loan portfolios, there's kind of three levels to accounting, one through three. But the bottom line is that a lot of these loans, uh, in, in some cases because they're jumbo mortgages or they're non-conforming you know, loans or commercial real estate loans, what have you, there are no liquid markets for these loans. And so the values reflected 
on the balance sheets and then the attendant book value associated uh, with with those with those loans could potentially be like grossly grossly uh, misstated. Um, and so the way I'm looking at this from a macro standpoint, if you just kind of aggregate and the Fed does this or, or Fred, um, commercial banking sector has like 22 trillion worth of assets, about 17 trillion of the 22 are kind of securities. So we all know that we have some, you know, duration risk slash uh, interest rate risk in, in these, you know, a core product of the U.S. is like the 30 year mortgage. So one of the in terms of its uh, impact vis-a-vis uh, -vis duration, one of, one of the most impacted securities. So point is, again, I'd like love anybody to push back on these numbers, but take your 17 trillion, uh, assume that half of those loans are impacted by duration risk because you're going to get fixed interest loans, but you're also going to get, oh, that's not me. <laughs> um, you're you're going to get fixed interest rate loans, but you're also going to get floating rate loans, et cetera. So just assume half of your 17 trillion are impacted to the tune of 5%. So you're now talking about 8 trillion impacted by 5%. Uh, that's 400 billion. So the 400 billion does not sound like a lot, except for the fact that banks run, you know, seven, 10, 15, 20 times leverage in terms of their equity to assets. And so my theory is the reason why, you know, A, none of these assets can really change hands. And like you saw the Civby merger occur, but it also came with like a $9 billion check on top of $90 billion in assets. Um, but the reason why you're not seeing any of these assets change hands is because in, in a, a bank merger, you're required to mark the assets to market. And you can't in a lot of cases without getting negative book value. So flipping back to my macro point, I, I now take, you know, 400 billion of equity, like a potential hit to common equity that the banks have, again, against the 17 trillion, and I lever it, let's just say 10 times. Um, that in terms of a credit impulse, that's a $4 trillion credit impulse. And that's 25% of GDP, roughly, a little bit less, um, 20%. But that's my theory thesis. And I, I think the problem is potentially so big that the only way we can solve this, it's not going to be these kind of one-off ring fencings of, you know, deposits and kind of shoring up. It's like we have to we have to find a way to get the long end of the curve down. The problem with cutting the short end of the curve is, ironically, it may send inflation expectations up, which will push long term interest rates up, which will make the balance sheet holes larger. So then I start looking at Japan, you know, and they have there's a reason why they have the long end pin to 50 basis points. And, you know, I think we might be heading there. So I'll pause there. One, one, uh... Hey, Future, let me, let me throw something at you. Okay. So number one on the banking situation, do you, you mentioned health, health to maturity securities. And in the end, if the Fed is the ultimate backstop when the shit really hits the fan, like, isn't there sort of this invisible safety net that everyone sort of uh, realizes is there that sort of 
you know, that's those are the guys walking the tight ropes over the over the stadium, but they have that yeah. net down there. That's number one. Number two, on the long end in Japan, right? The BOJ owns like all the bonds now, almost, and the the Fed in here, I mean, everywhere, you, they can't really control that far end of the curve as much as we'd like to think and hope. So I wonder how you juxtapose that and your numbers. I can't. I that's granular, too granular for me to have any. Uh, you know, I don't know enough, but uh, on the granularity there. But it seems like we're almost at a point where we're we're going towards Japan uh, beyond our control, almost. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have lots of thoughts on that. So um, the one thing I would say is like all these numbers are publicly available. So the micro numbers, if you just look, you know, for three basic things. Um, you look for the available for sale, and this is going to be on any bank's 10K. So you look, ava- look at available for sale. Uh, you can look at the level one, two, and three marks on both the held to maturity and the loan assets. A lot of people don't capture those when they talk about banks. They're just talking about available for sale. But every single bank has basically schedule of a carrying amount versus you know a mark to market amount, again, on loans and held to maturity. And you just go through and look, and the numbers you know, in terms of markdowns, I've yet to see any markups, but the markdowns are staggering. Uh, yeah, no. So it's a great question on the administration. I do, I do have uh, thoughts, which is you heard Powell say at the most recent Fed meeting, you know, that the bankers had time to prepare. <laughs> Certainly if they were in Georgia during the last uh, 12 months or however, however long, like they had advanced notice of the fact that interest rates were going to go up. And so, yeah, the treasuries are pristine collateral. But again, it's not a it's not a credit quality issue, as other people alluded to. This is a duration uh, mismatch. And so the Fed's not going to cover you if you bought a 30 year treasury and it's now down 20 percent. And again, just just think about how the leverage works. Like if I put up 10 billion, buy 100 billion of 30 year treasuries and then the treasuries are down 20%. Not only have I wiped through my 10 billion of equity, I'm in the whole 10 billion. And that's like illustrative, but you know, look at the CFB transaction and the numbers are actually pretty close to that. So I and then you also like listen to what Joe Biden said. He, you know, they don't they they don't want to and they can't uh, guarantee all deposits. So instead what Biden is saying is he's basically like you know, this, the responsibility to kind of mop up the losses falls on the shoulders of, you know, bank investors, um, managers, and and PREF, uh, uh, basically the bondholders. So that's where the losses are going to come in, you know, so and, and compress first. So future, let me ask you, so where does that leave you with respect to bank stocks? Un- uninvestable or, or too opaque? What does that leave you think about the economy? I mean, at the risk of asking a leading question. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, like I said, I mean, I'm not a macroeconomist. And what's interesting is like I've laid this math out. Um, again, like if you just go to the Fred website and type in total commercial assets, like anybody who looks at financial companies will take a view on the amount of common equity that is held against those commercial banking assets. And so, you know, my math is out there. Um, yeah, I, I think like it's pretty scary, George. I, I'm not a macroeconomist, but if I, you know, think that 
the credit the credit impulse in terms of a contraction could be even one trillion dollars. That's like five percent GDP. It's a, it's a huge number. As far as bank stocks, I agree. Um, they're typically pretty opaque, but if anything, that's kind of working against the banks, right? Because think about Civvy, uh, who had their easy to value. Again, there's level one, two, three. It's it's a little too wonky to probably get into in, in front of this many people, but um, treasuries are like a liquid, markable level one asset. There's a there's a deep liquid market for them, and that's where they got into trouble. So now just think about the illiquid stuff, you know, level two and level three, what the marks could be there. And again, it's not like we don't have duration risk because one of the core products in this country, you know, as I said, is a 30 year mortgage bond. So it's not just the treasuries which are taking marks. So ho- hopefully that answered the question. Yeah, so, yeah, where's, think... so, so, so for the average person in the room, so, so where does that leave you? It's like banks are just too hard. I mean, to invest in it and, because I, I look at it and I kind of throw my hands up. Yeah, they're 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 tough. I mean, now I sort of go back to my like macro comment and just say, you know, TLT looks strong, Q's look strong, and gold looks strong. But to me, like in a world where TLT and gold perform really strongly, like I don't think you're also going to get uh, an attendant rally in the Q's. So the bottom line for me is. Um, yeah, I'm not super bullish on the banking sector. Take that for what it, you know what it's worth, and um, they are opaque certainly. But like, just keep in mind that if the long end of the curve keeps going up, this problem's going to get worse. And it doesn't just apply to a handful of regional banks. You can look, you know, up and down the chain, so to speak. Um, and yeah, so like, I like TLT, uh, and I'm pretty bearish on the economy. And and yeah, as far as bank stocks, I just don't want to get into oh, so you know, it, individual names. Yeah, so you like TLT? Do you also like gold? I do, and I've, I'm the opposite of whatever a you know gold bug is, but uh, I I do like it. Hey, uh, uh, right, one good. thing, um, future that really good points. Um, yeah, and you could get wonky in here, and that's um, that would be um, I'd, I'd love to chat with you uh, further. The one thing I'm I'm the way I'm looking at banks right now. Um, in the financials, I, I think there's, um, you know, there's been an earthquake that's happened in the in the whole sector. There's been capital flight, and I really want to see um, where where things sort of wash out uh, on earnings and and the earnings calls because I think it's going to be very revealing uh, once uh, companies are able to have a frank discussion as far as where their businesses are and vulnerabilities because I think that's uh, I think there's aftershocks that are going to happen. And uh, especially, you know, we didn't even get into really deep into commercial real estate and some of the the risks there for a lot of the banks. But uh, that's uh, for another time. Yeah, hey, right. George. It, yeah, I'm sorry. I guess I guess just to cap cap that off, and I'll you know go 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 on mute. But yeah, thanks, Tom. Or you know, reach out to Tom. But I was going to say, you know, contrast that to like J.P. Morgan. There there is another side to this story, which is obviously like. Capital has flowed one direction. It's flowed to the, the money center banks. Um, and that's going to be low cost uh, funding for those guys. And so you'll probably, you know, some of it will make up, uh, get made up there. But, you know, I would just encourage anybody, like, look at the assets, uh, look at the marks. It's not just apply to the regional banking sector. So, and, and the one final thing on JP Morgan, um, 
you know, they'll show you like the average uh, rate that they will earn on originated loans in any given quarter. And so like their Q4 looks pretty good. Like they're, they're averaging what you'd expect around like five and a half percent. So that looks really, really good. But then you compare that to the interest rates that, you know, some of the relationship driven sort of communities are earning uh, over the last quarter and they're much, much lower, which is not good given where funding costs are right now. Bobby J. Yeah. As a whole, Banks have not been investable for long term uh, as a long term holding because uh, we all know that the sector used to represent about 22, 23 percent of the total S&P index. And that has shrunk down to about 8 percent over the last 25 years or so. So, you know, we're going to have continued shrinkage. We're going to have more deposit outflows. But this industry has to right size. Now, the good news is there's about. Uh, 20,000 branches that need to close because you ask anybody who's under the age of 40, uh, when was the last time they went to a, a, a branch? And they'll say never. And every branch that closes is uh, about 700,000 in savings to the system. And the other thing you should know, which is a startling number, is that out of the 4,400 banks out there, uh, about 3,000 have five branches or less. So this is really, like I said before, getting lopsided. You'll have trading rallies. Any Anytime the Fed eases, you have bank stocks rally, but you better be a fair weather friend. And uh, in, in terms of mergers, you know, two dead batteries aren't going to start a car. So thanks, Bobby. Appreciate it. Let's keep moving here because uh, we've been going this for an hour and a half. Time flies when you're having fun. Let's go to Dave Nikoski. Dave, uh, if you keep it kind of tight, because uh, I want to try to wrap this room up by six if we can. Dave, floor is Absolutely. Yours. I just want to say uh, thank you, George. I think it was we did a call on February 22nd, and I you know, was all over the banks at that time, long before anyone was talking about them. Um, you know, my thoughts on the banks, and I, I haven't heard anyone bring it up, but what about geographical locations of banks? You know, it seems to be that you have, you know, obviously, you know, the VC intensive areas of California, high rapid rise in asset prices in terms of real estate, um, derivative type lending. Uh, you know, you had MCB today in New York having somewhat the same issues. Um, that was a bank that if you go Google it, you know, had done banking with Coinbase as well. It looks like they halted their uh, you know, cryptocurrency relationship with Coinbase. I think it was January 9th of 2023. So I, I don't know if the bears are, are jumping all over that, uh, but that, that was down extremely hard today. Um, I'm just wondering if anyone out there that has the banking expertise that, you know, if you're in a small community bank that, you know, there's 25 branches, 50 branches, you know, they probably don't do the sophisticated type of investment that a lot of the bigger banks will do um probably midwest you know texas arizona florida if you know they've seen population growth probably deposit growth too along with that population flow um just throwing things out there outside the box you know things to think about anyone have thoughts on that Uh, on mcb on mcb 
No, about the the thought process of geographical regions for banks, uh, the types of loan quality that they do. Uh, You know, when you get into a small town, you don't have, you know, huge, you know, uh, 50-story office buildings that commercial real estate. Yeah, 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 Dave, I think Josh and or Future might have something on that. Yeah, okay. Future, Josh, either of you? Yeah, I mean, I don't have, I'm not a, I'm not a, financials guy per se but uh, i think their crypto exposure was quite minimal relative to signature bank and silvergate but uh yeah i mean anything remotely related to crypto is radioactive so but i don't i don't have anything to add on the other point so i'll let future take it away future oh yeah thanks so just real quickly i i do think you know regions uh, and asset mix are important um but what, what you've actually seen is the regional banks like take up the slack from the money center banks in terms of loaning to CRE. So they're way out punching their weight uh, in terms of exposure to that category. So like, I, was, I guess I was just going to say like the regional banks do serve a function and the fact that credit extension is a, is a local exercise. You know, you have to understand the, the real estate asset, the, the small business, whatever it is. Um, but then again, like my, personal theory is that I think the money center banks had a more macro view slash concerns around commercial real estate and interest rate risk and all the things we're playing out now. And again, like the regional banks took that burden onto their balance sheet and were the ones who extended a lot of this credit. Um, So like there are names, you know, in the Midwest, uh, if you just Google like the skyscraper bank, I think it is, there are names in the Midwest that are financing like skyscrapers out of, out of their way outside of their backyard. So just, just like, just like another interesting point, I think the regional analysis makes sense, but you actually have to go and look at like, where are these regional banks extending credit? And like, why didn't the money center banks, uh, why weren't they the ones to do it? Got it. Uh, Daniel, uh, floor is yours. Daniel. Thank you, George. How are you today? Good. What's up? What's your question, man? No, not really a question. Just uh, piggybacking off of the topic here with the um, geographic location of banks, whether or not it's an issue. I'm in New York, and um, I'm not by far an expert on on this topic, except I can just share some things that I'm hearing is in in the city, for instance, in Manhattan, you have a, a large amount of vacancies in office buildings in the city and in Manhattan. And um, these these regional banks, um, including Signature Bank that I was short, um, were were had a large commercial real estate uh, uh, part of their business. So I think geographic location is important to look at uh in new york and california actually in a space i had earlier with david who's on stage we were discussing this very topic um so it's something that i'm looking at i'm actually um personally short um part of me metropolitan bank i think they have some issues but yeah I'm, I'm not up here to to really talk too much i wanted to listen thank you for the mic and uh i enjoyed the space thanks thanks very much for that uh maybe we, sh- we should uh we should talk offline okay who's on stage that hasn't uh, spoken yet uh guy Serendula, my good friend um floor is yours 
Hey, George. Hi. Hey, hi Tommy. Uh, George, I just wanted to uh, share a couple of things. So this afternoon I ran uh, my, it's a multi-factor model I put together a number of years back when I was at working at Wellington, but I, I look at, uh, I ran the screen of the S&P 1500, and I do that pretty consistently to get a sense of a bottom-up approach of how many stocks are in an, in an uptrend uh, on an absolute and relative basis and measuring the momentum of those two trends, absolute and relative. And it, so these are slower moving and it tr just tries to give you a sense of uh, the participation of stocks advancing, declining, et cetera. What I just, I had to take a double, a double take because of the numbers that popped up. So as of this afternoon, there's 23% of the stocks of the S&P 1500 with a favorable score. Again, this is showing on a weekly basis the momentum uh, of absolute and relative, relative in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the, the absolute and relative trends of both uh, in the trending environment and momentum of those uh, trends are, are favorable. So only 23%. But what was really shocking is that 70% of those stocks have a poor score. The last time we had a score in the sevens, the 70, the 70 handle was at the October low at 75% and June low at 78%. So if you think of it, June 78, October 75, and now 70, and the S&P is well above those lows, what this is telling me is that it's a narrowing environment of stocks that are, are, are propping the index up. And again, these are weekly timeframes. It's slower moving. So to me, it smells like we're on thinner air as this, you know, the market has advanced. So uh, I'm going to do a further breakdown tomorrow in terms of uh, participation within sectors, but I thought that was like an incredible stat. I threw the chart up on my uh, on my Twitter space, you know, for people to look at. And uh, anyway, I just thought that might be of interest. That's that's terrific, guys. So, guys, you're saying only 23% of the stocks have favorable both absolute and relative scores. Is that what I understood? Exactly, exactly. So the, there could be some scores that are favorable, but they're deteriorating, but they have to go below a certain threshold to go neutral and then negative. But as of now, it's only 23%, yes. It, it, okay, I got it. And so yeah. that's, that's, that's wow. But, but what shocked, what scared me is just that it's 70% are negative. So the last time we're that low is when the market was down at the trough. So... It just less participation uh, participation on this on this uh, on this move up over the last you know number of months, right? So, wow. Um, anyway, just to be careful. That, that that's great. I don't know if, if Dave McCoskey or Tommy Thornton have any uh, want to weigh in on that at all. He's a technician. Yeah, I I posted quite a few things to my timeline over the last several weeks about you know just a complete narrowing of breath. Um, you know whether you take the triple Qs, I think. Uh, forty-six percent um, of the triple Qs are above their fifty-day. Just to give you an idea, you know. So, and and that's like that in just about every sector. You know, you're not getting participation by the retail. XRT um, is is very weak. You know, it's it's near its October lows. Um, I, I you know it's. I've never seen a bull market start with, you know, just tech moving and, you know, staples, the XLP is breaking the downtrend. If you look at relative strength, you know, even on the XLP, you know, you have ascending rallies and reactions taking place and that bottomed, you know, early February, I believe it was um, February 8th, I believe is the time that that bottomed. So, you know, you, I've never seen staples lead into a bull market, but the XLP has been leading the S&P since February 8th to give you an idea. So, 
Wow. That's not. Uh... <laughs> hey, George, let me just chime in real quick to, to sort of, yeah. push, you know, add a little bit here. So obviously 2022, we saw the tax base just get destroyed and everyone sold tax loss selling, maybe one of the biggest tax loss selling end of the years ever. And then on like January 4th or 5th or 6th, there was that massive factor reversion, right? And tech and Apple and Amazon went crazy. Then I looked at February 2nd, which is ironically enough, Groundhog Day. That was the day Amazon put in its big earnings. It gapped up, massive volume. The next day it gapped down. That's like what we call island reversal or abandoned baby, whatever your technical parlance is. Since then, Apple, uh, Amazon's still down about 12%. So to me, that's the sort of line in the sand that will tell me if the bull market's coming back is if that island gets taken. Now, interestingly, in March, right, we had the banking crisis, whatever we're calling it. And in the last handful of days, we actually saw people selling bonds, which are normally safe, and piling into tech, which I think Guy and uh, David just pointed out, that's the narrowing of the rally, five or six stocks leading the whole, uh, holding up the whole logjam, so to speak. So it'll be interesting. Obviously, tomorrow's last day of the quarter, but we're heading into earnings season in April. It will be very interesting. All the people who just piled right back into tech, memories of goldfish, as to where we're going. And then one last point to futures, what he was saying about TLT and the yields and, and the Qs. We have to remember, 00 to 02, the Fed cut from 6 to 2, and the spoos got cut in half because that was like a panicky kind of like bond, uh, sorry, yield, uh, yields went down because of the panic, if you will. So that's the scenario that Future was talking about. I'm trying to tie together a little bit. The TLT looking good, and yet he's not sure if TLT and tech could both rally. I think there's something to that. So we're heading into, after this quarter ends, it, it seems to like there could be a normalization. And I think this past quarter was a little abnormal. And Guy and David just pointed that out. So I agree that we should be concerned, uh, just a little bit cautious heading into Q2. That's what I got. Hey, George, if, if I may, real quick yeah. before we, we end, uh, I yeah. was getting a, a DM as we were talking about NVIDIA earlier. Um, I have the same time frame, a short position as not tire. Um, and someone was messaging me saying that, and maybe this is not significant, I'm not sure, but after hours in NVIDIA, there was a couple cells of uh, over 390,000 shares totaling around 273 million, and then about 75 million shortly after that. This is all like within the past hour and a half or so. So um, it didn't seem to affect the the stock price too much in after hours, but maybe we see see that uh, come into effect maybe tomorrow or next week. But yeah, I, I agree with not with uh, Josh on that on that uh, on Nvidia. Thanks for that. Uh, let's take a couple more, and then we're going to close the room. Let's go to Jeffrey. Jeffrey, the floor is yours. Hello, can you hear? Me? Hey, hey, can you hear me? Yeah, we got you, Jeffrey. Hey, I was just um. Wanted to chime in if anybody had questions on, on the CRE at banks. I've been a bank analyst for about almost 30 years now, unfortunately, some some cases. Uh, but what people are earlier, there was a discussion around CRE on banks and community banks versus money centers and whatnot. And I think if people are going to do the work and dig in, it's all on you know bank filings. You can get it quarterly. Um, a lot of banks are very good about disclosure in their um, pre investor presentations as well if they want to dig in. But I would just caution that 
don't just broad brush every bank's CRE portfolio as being office, because also in there you have warehouse, industrial, multifamily, uh, lots of other types of in loan categories that would be um, very interesting to look at kind of on a piece-by-piece -piece basis instead of just blanket um, blanket saying all CRE is bad. You know, you have multifamily, which is a 55% type of loan-to-value ratio. Um, you have lots of different types of office. So, you know, your suburban dentist office is, your dentist is doing well and they're going to keep paying their mortgage. If you have an urban uh, CRE office portfolio like Signature did, that's clearly a problem. And that's why they're not here anymore. But not every, most banks don't lend to office towers. Most small community banks are too small to even make that kind of loan. So, so you really got to get in the weeds and, and, yeah. and look at them on a, on a bank bank basis. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, you just have to do that. You have to pull pull apart their disclosures and look at it um, kind of on a one-by-one -one bank basis and just saying broad brush, all CRE is, is going to be weak is just not not the right way to look at right. it. So, so when you look at the sector and, and the way you look at it, <laughs> do you see a lot of mispricings, i.e. some areas where they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater and yet other names where – they really haven't taken an ax to the stock price the way that they should? Uh, uh, definitely. Yeah, I think that there's, they've definitely thrown the baby out with the bathwater in some of the community banks and smaller regional banks um, that just don't have this type of loan exposure. They, don't, they, they can't, you just think about the size of the bank and its balance sheet relative to the size of what an office tower loan would be, for example. They don't have the capacity to make that loan uh, in the first place. You know, they're lending to your two-story suburban dental or medical office, which is a very sticky type of loan, versus, you know, now the ones, you know, Signature and Silicon Valley 100% deserve to not be here anymore. They had, you know, their own funding issues and they mismanaged their balance sheets. Um, but if you start digging, you know, you start getting into the 50th largest bank in the country or the 100th largest bank in the country, there's about 300 or so that are publicly traded. Uh, very different outlooks. You know, people are not fleeing deposit bases of your community banks or your regional banks that are out in, you know, the Midwest or out in rural areas. Um, if you go out and see, you know, if you're going in, if you're a bank in Montana or a bank in Idaho or a bank in rural Oregon, you're not, you're, you, you, those banks are not seeing deposit outflows. And I had a conversation with the head of investment banking today at a large bank specialist firm. And he said that he expects when banks report in about a month that you're going to see deposits down anywhere from at most, you know, zero to 1% at most community banks. They're not seeing the deposit outflows that Silicon Valley's and First Republic's and Signature's had. Right. You know, First, First, First Republic is an issue, That's you know, but um, smaller banks aren't seeing that. Right. That's that's terrific, Jeffrey. Future, do you want to weigh in? Yeah, no, that's, that's great stuff and, and definitely an important distinction to make that uh, you can't group all these in. I, I guess... I just want to go back a little bit to the macro and then maybe ask you a question, Jeff. Uh, thanks for expanding on some of these things. So to me, like, you know, the, the primary function of a bank is to borrow short and lend long. And so the yield curve has been inverted for quite some time. And, you know, it's like inverted actually a little bit more in the early 80s. But if you look at just a percentage of the base rate, we are far more inverted now than probably any of these bankers have ever experienced in their lives. And so my kind of point, and really maybe it's just a question back to you, is you look at the quantum of lending that was done in 2020, 2021, and part of 2022 in the ZERP environment, 
and the balance sheets went vertical. And not only did the balance sheets go vertical, but they went vertical at a time when, you know, nobody really wants those loans at the par value they were underwritten, not because they did a bad job on underwriting the asset, not because rents are moving up or down, but just because like simply the interest rate is too low. And so my thing with all these guys, like doesn't matter if you're a great underwriter, have good assets or bad, just because of the way that the yield curve has moved and the way interest rates have moved, those securities, those assets are not liquid. And now you couple that with, you know, that's an interesting stat about people not moving their deposits around or like zero to one, but you couple that with, you know, a, a, an environment where depositors are going to increasingly demand at least something on their deposits. Maybe it's not 5% or even three or four, but like a lot of these loans are underwritten at, you know, one, two, three percent. So I guess my question is like, how do you square, like, how does a bank get liquidity given where these marks are? I think there's, there's a lot wrapped into that question. Um, most of which I agree with um, the premise of the question, which is that rates were really low, almost too low for banks to make economical loans. Um, for the most part, if you were looking at fixed rate kind of long-term, say a long-term fixed rate loan on a multifamily property or, or just a general commercial real estate property. Um, and a lot of banks, especially the smaller banks stepped back from doing that and didn't want to make those loans. So those loans were not made by your average community bank for the most part. They were made by life insurance companies or pension funds or what some people refer to as shadow banking. I don't really like the term, but credit funds that have raised a lot of capital. Kind of think of like your Blackstone credit fund that's making larger loans. So they they did extend those loans. Um, life insurance companies have made a lot of these fixed rate longer term CRE loans. Uh, so that's an issue. I think the issue, broadly speaking, is the one that when the system got flooded, you know, the system was kind of starved for deposits up until COVID and then suddenly got flooded with deposits with all the government spending. So they had to find a place to put it. The smarter ones put it in short term securities um, like a JP Morgan. You, know, you, can, you can look up Jamie Dimon's comments a year ago versus Silicon Valley's comments a year ago, what they were doing with the money. And Dimon was saying he was staying, staying short and Silicon Valley was saying they were going long. Um, so again, it's kind of a go bank by bank and see what they did. Um, but as a systemic issue with the marks and where rates have gone, you do have issues with the held and maturity books. That's why they put in the latest facility to let banks access liquidity to continue to fund them if needed and then and then wait it out. So the best thing that could happen for these banks would be, as I think it was discussed here earlier, is for rates to go back down. You're going to see already with the move that we've had in rates this quarter that a lot of these marks that were on the balance sheets at 1231 are going to look a lot better at 331. Just bond math, right? Rates are lower. So the value of the securities has gone higher. Great. I could, I could talk about it a lot more, but I know it's, you want to keep this short. So. Yeah. Anyone else? I think we're going to, unless anyone else has something they want to say, anyone else uh, on the panel, um, any other bank comments? Uh, otherwise, this has been a fantastic room. Um, and Tommy, I want to thank you, as always. Did a superb job kicking the whole thing off. It's been a great room. We'll do another one next week. And uh, everyone be well. Have a terrific weekend. Good night, everyone.